0: Hello and welcome to Inside Politics, the Irish Times weekly political podcast. It's Harry McGee standing in for Hugh Linehan this week. Before we start, a small plug for an event that we're holding next week. It's the first ever Irish Times Live Politics Night. It'll be held here in the Irish Times building on Tara Street and will feature a live politics podcast, a video presentation and live music from our most talented musical politicians. It's on Thursday, February 22nd at 7pm and tickets, which are €10 euro or €5 euro for subscribers, are available on eventbrite.ie. Now, for once, neither abortion nor Brexit were the dominant themes in politics this week. Negotiations to restore the institutions in the North almost achieved a breakthrough. Later, we'll talk to Amanda Ferguson about how it's all coming asunder. There was also a big debate over the rural-urban divide. In advance of the publication on Friday of two key government plans setting out what Ireland should look like over the next twenty-five years, I'm joined in studio by Fiac Kelly, the deputy political editor, and also by uh, Frank Macdonald, who's environment editor emeritus of the Irish Times.
1: Oh, you're very kind. Who
0: once <laughs> occupied uh, these halls, <laughs> Frank? You have written a an absorbing uh, op-ed piece uh, this week, which chimes with many pieces you've written before, and the headline is "Rural Villages Will Die." until bungalow blitz is stopped. You first wrote about this phenomenon of uh, strings of once-off rural housing over 30 years ago in The Times. Can you maybe bring us back a little to that and explain what was the rationale behind you tackling this particular subject? uh,
1: Well, we came up with the title uh, bungalow blitz to describe the phenomenon. And and that was a play on... um, the title uh, of a famous pattern book, which was done by Jack Fitzsimons, a a former Fianna Fáil senator, and an amateur architect uh, called Bungalow Bliss. And it became the kind of Bible and the template for a lot of the housing that was being built in Ireland at at that time. And, you know, we calculated then that about a third of the national housing stock uh, consisted of one-off houses. There probably were less than 300,000 of them at that point, Um, And, you know, there were various people in Dublin and, and, you know, planners and others who said to me, oh, you know, that that series is so hard hitting, you know, it's bound to have an impact. It had no impact whatsoever on the phenomenon. It continued on relentlessly over the years to such an extent that we now have half a million uh, one off houses in the countryside in Ireland. Okay. Uh, and, and that's and that's at the expense of our towns and villages.
0: Yeah. So the, you said it was a pattern book. So the book contained plans, essentially plans, for yeah, bungalows. Yeah, 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 so yeah, every yeah. house in the countryside, almost that was built in the nineteen seventies, came straight out of Jack Fitzsimon's books. Well, I wouldn't plans. say
1: all of them necessarily, but the, it was very, very influential, and a lot of people turned to it because they they couldn't. Imagine hiring an architect, for example, to design a house. So, so the easiest thing to do was to go for you know, plan forty three B on page such and such of Jack Fitzsimons' um, uh, Bible.
0: Sure. And the examples that you gave at the time, uh, if I recall, were was the road from Galway out towards Spiddal and out towards Carrero right. yeah. and other areas where there was lots of this ribbon yeah. development. I
1: mean, I remember seeing it from from uh, from the t- the tip of Clare. Uh, directly opposite uh, on the south side of Galway Bay. And, you know, what, what I could see was a continuous white line running all along from uh, basically from, from the outskirts of Galway right along the coast. Um, and that that was something that to me seemed both ruinous and, um, and appalling because, because, you know, not only, not only was it ruining the landscape, Um, uh, as landscapes throughout the country have been ruined by by the proliferation of housing but it was also locking Galway into uh, a long term car dependency uh, where there really is no other way of getting around because you know, public transport is not feasible um, in dispersed to serve dispersed rural housing and that is something that we just have to face up to and, and and indeed what many of the bungalow builders will have to face up to in the longer term because, you know, while people build in their 20s and 30s um, you know, what are they going to do in the, when they're in their 80s? How are they going to get around? Would they not like to be near an acute general hospital for example, if they had some heart condition as opposed to mild out in the middle of nowhere. Now, those who argue for uh,
0: the allowance of, of such bungalows in rural situations will say that this has been the pattern of development in Ireland. This has been the pat- pattern of of. Uh, uh, habitation in Ireland for for generations. For millennia, in fact. Yeah, Jim Tully will say nothing gave him greater pleasure than seeing a light down at the end of a country road. The likes of Eamon O'Cueve will say that families uh, will always want to settle in the place where they're four parents came from, uh, where their farms are, where their land is. And in Ireland, there's almost a visceral attachment to, towards land. We see it in the plays of John B. Keane. Uh, we see it in this great attachment uh, to Michael Davitt and the Land League uh, well over a century uh, after its foundation. And they were saying that the, what you're arguing is going against the, the instinct or the
1: kind of the, the, yeah, the psyche
0: think, of, of the
1: Irish but Harry, uh, mentality. But I, I think that what, what Michael Davitt didn't foresee was that nearly every farmer in Ireland um, would uh, believe, would come to believe, that they had a right to sell off half-acre sites along the road frontages of their of their landholdings uh, to anybody who wanted to buy them to build on, um, assuming that they can get planning permission, or even to get outline planning permission and then sell the site with with the benefit of the of the planning um i mean that is something that um i think drives the whole thing that a lot of farmers um believe that they can they should be a- allowed to do that you know they might have sons and daughters going to college they need to you know pay for college education. Uh, they need to um, uh, pay extraordinary rents uh, that are now being demanded in places like Dublin and Cork and other place, other cities uh, to accommodate uh, their, their sons and daughters. And so, you know, selling a half-acre site for 50 grand or whatever uh, would, would, would cover those kind of bills.
0: Now, from your perspective and what you're arguing in the piece is that there are so many downsides to having a house in a comparatively isolated setting. Uh, from connection to electricity yep. uh, to broadband, also the fact that when people got older, mm. uh, that it makes it much harder for emergency services uh, to to access them. Maybe you could lay out that particular
1: argument. Well, I mean that th- that was spelled out way back in 1976 uh, in a in a report that was done by the then National Institute on Forest Ferber, which was involved in advising on on the construction industry, and and what. That report showed very clearly was that all public services are much more expensive to provide for dispersed rural housing than it than they are uh, for for towns and villages and, and indeed cities um, and and that report was so unacceptable to the political establishment as I pointed out. Uh, that it was suppressed for years um, because the truth couldn't be allowed to get out because it ran against, as you say, that kind of psyche uh, of facilitating um, um, anybody who wants to live in a rural area that they should be facilitated. Uh,
0: And um, what what is it that people have against villages and and towns? Because there are so many attractive Irish villages and towns where people want to have their splendid uh, South
1: Fork-like mansion way out in the countryside. I mean, not all of them are South Fork-like mansions, of course. But uh, I mean, uh, you know, I remember one very telling example uh, of an elderly woman uh, who had been living in an isolated house uh, about 15 miles from Gorey. Uh, and with no independent way of getting around, totally dependent on other people uh, to give her a lift into town every so often. And she was extremely lucky to get uh, a senior citizens bungalow that had been built as part of a scheme uh, by St. Vincent de Paul um, uh, in the in, in the centre of Gory, And, you know, she was so delighted with herself. You know, her life had been totally transformed. You know, she was no longer dependent on other people. She could walk to the shop. She could walk to the post office. She could go to mass on Sunday in the church directly opposite and so on, you know. Mm. And I mean, you know, she just thought she was the luckiest woman alive. And I think a lot of people are going to have regrets uh, when they get to that stage in life, that they're not living in in an actual community as opposed to a virtual one out in the middle of nowhere.
0: OK, now we're going to bring in Fiukh in a second, but uh, the, the basis for the uh, uh, article you wrote this week was the upcoming uh, uh, planning framework document, which will be uh, released on Friday. And there's been lots of re and rulia bullia about this Indeed. urban versus uh, rural uh, dimension of it. And your big concern is that you're quite satisfied with the language contained in the draft report uh, about uh Uh, settlement in rural areas. It essentially says that those who want to settle outside urban areas will uh, have to show a demonstrable economic need to live in a rural area. Your concern is that that language might be diluted in the document that appears on Friday.
1: I I fear so, yes, because there's been a huge lobby um, by rural TDs against it Um, on the basis that um it would restrict uh, the the spread of rural housing um and and um and I think it is that particular phraseology is more than justified I think that uh you should have to show an economic need to live in a in the countryside if you're going to build there and if you can't show that you shouldn't get planning permission
0: Fyuk. The document is going to be published on Friday. You've been writing about this, mm. specifically writing about the development plan as well, which will be uh, published mm. uh, alongside it. Um, there, there has been acute sensitivity within the government uh, that uh, to claims that it is too Dublin-centric And that it has ignored Hmm. or in some way demoted rural Ireland, uh, certainly in the draft of this plan. And they certainly have gone to address uh, some issues. Do you think that the document will assuage Frank's concerns? Or do you think that it will sway uh, towards those who are calling uh, for the things that Frank has been railing against? I
2: think the, the government's sentiment and the government's intention when it started out with this plan was perhaps to be more in line with Frank's thinking than what the previous spatial strategy in 2002 was, which is basically, as the government itself says, one for everybody in the audience. Now, the the real test will be on Friday when it's published that uh, will there be additional kind of towns dotted around the place marked for growth centres as there was in the previous plan, or will the government stick to its stated intention? Now, the signals so far have been that, you know, the big play with this plan was to spur development in the second tier cities, you know, Galway Waterford Cork and Limerick to counterweight Dublin's growth and then we had the the cause you know the North West is being ignored and the Midlands is being ignored and we now see you know phraseology like Athlone being the capital of the Midlands and perhaps Sligo being the capital of the North West so I think there will always have to be a tip of the cap to political concerns particularly in the this government, where it's such, of such precarious nature and is reliant on a group of rural TDs, effectively a small group of rural TDs within the government, such as those within the Independent Alliance to keep them on board. But whether it dilutes it to such an extent that it, its original intention is meaningless, that's going to be a huge test of the government because Leo Veradker and Pascal Dunhu and Owen Murphy have repeatedly said, this will not be what the previous plan was. I think if you see anything more aside from, you know, what looks like Sligo and Athlone being branched off as kind of sweeteners that would be kind of worrying, I would say, for the long-term
0: goal of the plan. Um, Lord Melbourne, I think, said a long time ago that reform involved taking a bone off a, a dog, <laughs> uh, uh, Frank. And politicians, particularly are crowd pleasers, they don't like to ruffle the feathers of the public by bringing in necessary... Uh, hard medicine. What are your instincts telling you about what the plan will unveil on Friday? Are
1: you well, optimistic or I'm, pessimistic, I, I, I'm, as to Welcome. I'm, I'm not too optimistic about it, I must say, uh, and and this that's against the backdrop of 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 previous failures um, going back to the 1960s. I mean, after all, the Buchanan report in in the late 1960s um, recommended that cork and limerick stroke shannon uh, should be designated as major national growth centres to counterbalance dublin um though uh, with some second tier options as well but not too many um and you know the, there was such a backlash from rural ireland at that time that the plan um was effectively scrapped um and what what it what the government decided in 1972 was that Dublin would be allowed to continue to grow, to absorb its natural kind of growth um, and so on. And basically that was a kind of a laissez-faire approach that that simply has resulted in in reinforcing the dominance of Dublin. And as a Dubliner, I can see that the city, the capital is suffering from severe congestion as a result of the concentration of economic activity here. And I think that the government really does need to be strong and firm in putting the eggs in the basket of Cork. I think Cork should have double the number of people uh, that it has at the moment. Limerick uh, similarly and so on. But it cannot be spread everywhere. You know, we have to create alternative engines. The only engine at the moment is Dublin and we need the other ones to start working.
0: A very clear demonstration of that this week, Fich, uh, has been the latest DAFT report on rent prices, its rent index, and it shows uh, rent prices, particularly in Dublin, escalating at a frightening rate in double figures once mm. again on a year-by-year year, uh, comparison. And they're estimating that rent will continue to rise in Dublin mm. uh, for an, an extra three uh, or four years. The government, since its formation, seems to have thrown everything at mm. the problem of housing, at homelessness, at rent, at rent pressure zones. But none of the strategies seem to be working or having any real impact on on what's happening out there. Yeah, the attitude within government, particularly
2: last year, was that they had thrown everything they could at it within the confines of what they actually wanted to do. We should add that proviso. Indeed. Uh, Yeah, and that they felt that perhaps they should sit back and let the reforms or measures they'd introduced take uh, effect. Uh, we We aren't seeing much effect of those particular measures yet, but I don't get the impression that there's any real sense from the government that they're willing to jump in again And intervene and one of the interesting things about their thoughts of increasing supply is the chatter about these plans coming next week is that you know not just the fact as frank says that we must divert future like medium and long-term growth away from dublin but in the more immediate term to free up parts of dublin for growth so it'll be interesting to see whether to tackle you know the medium-term supply issue in dublin there's talk of you know tackling the issue of brownfield and and infill sites around the city centre and along corridors of transport routes. So this idea of Metro North, the idea of Metro North would be that a swathe of North Dublin would then become available for development land. So, you know, there has been a very sharp focus. Anytime Metro North has been announced that it's, you know, it's about the airport. And I think what the argument will be is that it's not just about the airport, it's about, you know, going through North Dublin, out the airport and out through swords. So perhaps that's what the government sees as its solution in the medium term. But i didn't get the impression in recent months that they're willing to take any m- massive measures in the short term to, to tackle, or how do how do you in the short term tackle supply?
0: Well, Frank. You you live in Temple Bar. I and do. I'm, I'm, I'm sure sometimes. Every, it fe- sometimes it feels like you you're the only resident who has been living there for more than a week.
1: <laughs> no, I've been living there for 22 years in the mm. same apartment, and uh, I've seen everything. I mean, there isn't anything that would shock me now. But every single day, um, I would see people trundling um, um, luggage uh, through the streets um, on their way to uh, their their uh, party flat, as it were, for the weekend. Uh, rented through Airbnb and so on. I mean, way back in October of 2016, we got a ruling from on board Planola that a flat in Crown Alley that had so-called earned 79,300 the previous year uh, through being uh, rented out through Airbnb uh, for short-term letting, uh, that that flat um, required planning permission; that it was effectively a, a change of use from commercial to residential, from residential to commercial. And you know, uh, uh, it beats me that nothing of any seriousness has been done to tackle this this problem, which has resulted in the deduction through Airbnb alone of more than three thousand residential units from the Dublin housing stock. That's an extraordinary Um, statistic. But it is, it's over 3,100 entire homes are currently being short-let through Airbnb. And, you know, they include um, uh, apartments um, as well as houses, um, and, you know, it, it, the vast majority of them have no planning permission for a change of use from residential to commercial. Therefore, the whole the, the thing is largely operating illegally. I doubt if that many of them are paying tax. But the most shocking thing of all about it, I think, is that that those three thousand one hundred residential units would previously have been occupied on a on a long term basis, they have literally been taken out of the market. Mm. And when I see a government minister like Owen Murphy, you know, who who strikes me as being far too glib about about. Things uh, going out to attend the, you know, the, the, the sod cutting for some scheme of fifty houses or so in Ballymun or wherever. Um, fine as far as it goes. Fifty units. We're talking about serious losses. And if you uh, to the housing stock in the city, and mm-hmm. research in other cities has shown that the uh, proliferation of short lets has a, a dramatic impact on in, uh, on increasing rental values generally.
0: Now, um, Fia, just finally, um, you have been again looking at the area of kind of long term strategic thinking. You've been looking at the development plan. You've been foraging this week to see what might be Mm. in the uh, document on Friday. I think Metro North is going Mm. to be a a big feature of Mm. it. What else? Do you, ex- do you expect to see well, uh, when the document? It is seems published? that Metro North
2: is going to be the big announcement for Dublin. A lot of people may shrug their shoulders and say, "Say again, you know." But from the chatter around government, Leo Varadkar and Pascal Donohue really seem to be talking this up. As I said, as you know, the key to unlocking Dublin, and they're going to put a bit more money into it, possibly, you know, increase the capacity on the line, put more of it underground. Aside from that, well, will they give us a timescale on it? I, I, I think the timescale. From what I'm hearing at the moment, although you know, I would I would appreciate a bit more detail. Is that the timescale will remain the same? So I think it's 2027 is the is the expected rollout as of now. Like you have to bear in mind that if they amend this plan again, they would have to go back and do it an, and another RPO. They did a separate RPO just three years ago when they amended the plan. So if they're going to amend it again, the process will begin again. Uh, on aside from that, to counteract the argument that big infrastructure projects are going into Dublin. There is some talk about whether this kind of Fing Lewis, as they're calling it, the spur of the Lewis at the Fingless, may make it in or not. Apparently, it's it's there in the margins, but Metro is the priority. To counteract that, you would have increased funding for roads around rural Ireland. So, you know, I think Shane Ross is keen that of the money he's been given to improve roads, 80% will be spent outside the capital to kind of say, okay, there are infrastructure pro- infrastructure projects in Dublin, but there are others around the country. And obviously, the M20 is the big one, the Cork to Limerick Motorway. There's a huge political theme, head of political theme behind that, even if uh, some people may disagree with it.
0: Okay, well, geographics and demographics, as Bertie Ahern once famously said. And uh, thank you, uh, Frank uh, uh, MacDonald, for coming into studio talk to us. And thanks for the moment from Fiac as well. You're listening to the Irish Times. We're joined on the line by Amanda Ferguson, uh, who reports for the Irish Times from Belfast. Well, Amanda, on Monday, it looked so close that uh, the two big protagonists in British and Irish politics, uh, Prime Minister Theresa May and uh, Taoiseach, uh, Leo Varadkar, both arrived into uh, Belfast. But as events transpired, uh, they were close but no cigar. Uh, Things unravelled. And uh, as negotiations continued, it seems that instead of resolving differences, uh, there's been a bit of a cleavage and the uh, DUP and Arlene Foster and Sinn Féin under its new leader, Mary Lou Macdonald, are moving uh, further apart. So it's all over this uh, uh, Irish Language Act that has been one of the big preconditions of Sinn Féin. Can you explain a little bit about the Act and why it has caused such angst?
3: Yes, well, the Irish Language Act was um, a British government commitment in the St Andrews Agreement in 2006. Now, it's it's hidden away in in an annex somewhere, um, but it says, you know, the the government of the day will work with uh, the devolved assembly to introduce an Irish Language Act based on models in Wales um, and uh, and in the rest of Ireland. So this is always, always something... It was there, although the DUP said it wasn't their agreement. So essentially, you're, you're in the position now where it's like Sinn Féin and the DUP saying, you know, it's a British government commitment. This has to be something that goes ahead. Now, arguably, Sinn Féin can be criticised for not pushing this enough over the last ten years that they've been in government. But essentially, um, after all of the election um, angst and all of the crocodile comments, and um, coming towards the end of last year, whenever the the LISA uh, bursary for um, disadvantaged children was cancelled the Irish Language Act has come to represent more than the act itself. It's come to represent is there an acceptance of Irish identity and Irish culture in Northern Ireland? Is it viewed equally with British identity? So it's, it's come to represent more than, more than the actual act itself. And essentially now the, you know, the a bit to your argument about what the content of it should be and um, you know it seems as if um, the DUP has been a, a little bit spooked by by proceedings over the last few days OK okay.
0: just before we we go to that perhaps you could describe what's actually contained in the Act what will it uh, require because uh, it seems that uh, for example that there will be a right for example to learn Irish in schools uh, there will be provision for bilingual signs and there seems to be some provision as well for quotas Uh, In the uh, civil services. Is that the, the germ of what's contained in the
3: Act?
1: It's not the actually bill. Clear
3: de- it's not actually clear definitely what, what is in the Act and what's being proposed because the DUP and Champagne have kept a lot of this to themselves. Like certainly there's different proposals around, you know, recognition for the Irish language like you would have uh, for minority languages in Wales and Scotland. But the actual nitty-gritty of it, you know, whether it's going to be on directional signs, taught in schools, like all those different things um, isn't actually, you know, firmly laid out there. There's been lots of different proposals from people but I think that's one of the problems that nobody quite knows exactly what it is that everybody's looking for and because there hasn't been much leak in, it, it makes that quite difficult. But I think with, with Arlene Foster uh, coming out yesterday, you know, saying, you know, there's not going to be this, there's not going to be that, that sort of has thrown the, the the prospect of a deal, like, you know, it's a, it's a little bit uh, sort of sketchy at the moment, because towards the end of last week, after this like 13-month process, everybody thought that, you know, uh, there was speculation, this is going to be it, this is going to be it next week. But essentially, my understanding of it was... Nothing signed until it's signed, and the arrival um, of of Leo Varadkar and of Theresa May. You know, my understanding was that they were asked not to come, which I think is is something that Arlene Foster has said as well. So it, it's almost as if that they they arrive too soon, which is. Seems to be, have been the way with Theresa May before for, for previous um, for previous agreements, but certainly there's also been speculation about the, the purpose of Theresa May and the Varadkar being in Belfast at all. You know, was it really about the talks? Was it more to do with Brexit negotiations? Was it something that was planned in the diary for a long time? So, um, you know, towards. Well, the when you week, see
0: a, a British Prime Minister and an Irish Taoiseach arriving, you are yeah. thinking of breakthrough, uh, successful negotiations at the end of an impasse, and uh, they uh, fell uh, seemingly. At the, at the final hurdle. I think there was a difference of perception uh, between yeah. Sinn Féin and the DUP as to how the talks had developed. Sinn Féin, it seems, from all the reports uh, in the Irish Times from you and Jerry Moriarty over the past couple of days, were convinced that they were very close to the finishing line on Monday.
3: Well, there that we've been very close, and you know the, the repeated phrases keep happening. Significant progress has been made, but there's still gaps, and and that still existed at the weekend. You know, whenever the the, the two uh, heads of government arrived, I wasn't convinced that that was going to be signing day. And since then, the prospect of a deal has deteriorated as as you know as the hours have passed. Really, I think um, you know whether their arrival was to put pressure on the parties is another thing. But I really don't think the EU, and Sinn Féin were ready for them to arrive on um, Monday. I think I think that it's, it's jumped the gun, and it's actually probably be more damaging for the process and it's been beneficial.
0: If they weren't ready on Monday, they certainly ain't ready now. We're just going to play a clip uh, from an interview that Arlene Foster uh, gave to the Press Association
3: yesterday. There won't be uh, a freestanding Irish language act. We've always made that very clear. Uh, There won't be compulsory uh, Irish in schools, there won't be anyone forced to uh, learn Irish language, there won't be quotas in the civil service, and there won't be bilingual directional signs. So uh, all of that sort of speculation uh, is so far out there and I just want to make it very clear that that is certainly not the territory we're in.
0: Okay, now it seems evident from that that uh, Arlene Foster's uh, position if anything has hardened uh, since Monday and you refer to this already I think she's been influenced uh, by noises off as it were uh, particularly uh, what's been said in the past couple of days uh, by the uh, uh, former Ulster uh, unionist and UKIP uh, person David McNary as well as Jim Alistair of the Traditional Unionist Party. How influential, maybe perhaps describe their inf- interventions and uh, tell me how impactful they have been in relation to the DUP's position.
3: Well, um, Jim Alistair and Dave McNary would be very hardline in their view. You know, UKIP doesn't have a presence in Northern Ireland and, and Jim Alistair is a party of, of one person, but certainly some of the concerns they, are, uh, they outline would be reflected in some unionist opinion. But I think there has been a lot of scaremongering around this. Essentially, what I can gather is that the the proposal seems to be around three possible bills or three possible acts, one that would take care of Irish language, one that would take care of Ulster Scots, and one that would take care of culture and respect. And Sinn Féin have always insisted they have to have a standalone Irish Act Language Act. Arlene Foster has said that she won't tolerate a standalone Irish Language Act. You know, they're using language like freestanding. You know, what way is it going to look? Is it three pieces of separate legislation? Do they become one? So it's now down to the nitty-gritty. And essentially observers are looking and saying, you know, it's clearly something that can be overcome, it's clearly something where it can feel like a win for everybody, but unfortunately as as is ever, we're back to sort of zero-sum politics uh, in Northern Ireland, and I think that the contributions from David McNary and Jim Allister are, are sort of, essentially, uh, uh, as Colmie would have said, you know, trying to make a lumpy out of out of Arlene Foster, uh, and I think it's just uh, spoilt her a little bit. But certainly, um, you know, the, the, there's a, mm-hmm. a, a sort of a broad okay. view. Of, well, if this is provided for in Wales and Scotland, you know, what's what's the issue about having it here?
0: Okay, Amanda, thank you very much indeed for that. Fiac Kelly is here with me in studio. Uh, Fiac, uh, Amanda said a zero sum game. Uh, the prospects of uh, an early. Breakthrough. through, and look all the more remote uh, as the week uh, progresses. Yeah, I think you know people in Dublin were downplaying
2: this idea that Leo Varadkar and Theresa May travelled to Belfast on Monday in the expectation that a deal was there to be signed. I think they said, "Look, we were going up to encourage more than to finalise um, And I think still, though, yesterday, did um, you really
0: believe that? i I be honest. I, do honestly, I, who, I, d- I
2: don't. I don't. Huge emphasis on symbolism. Yeah, I don't quite believe that. I, I, do don't, I don't do think that a deal would have been signed on Monday, but I do think they expect one to be signed in the day or two after. So I don't think they were there to preside over a, a signing ceremony or anything like that. I think they expect that we'll go up, we'll give the, the extra push, and then we'll bask in the reflected glory of the deal. But, you know, as you said, that is kind of somewhat... Uh, Falling off into the background now. I know people in Sinn Féin were texting people in government buildings yesterday saying, look, I know you guys thought it'd be done it on Wednesday. It's not looking likely it's going to be Wednesday now. And now people in government were saying, well, it could be Friday. And, you know, they had this kind of bizarre idea that because uh, the government is la- launching its national planning framework and capital plan on Friday, that Sinn Féin would like to do it on Friday. But like, that's all by the by now. It seems to be drifting into the distance. There was an expectation, though, that it would be done this week. So if it slips past this week, then the government will be extremely disappointed and I suppose it would have to question the wisdom of Leo
0: Varadkar and Theresa May travelling on Monday. Okay and well one byproduct uh, of the visit of both uh, leaders was uh, that they had an opportunity to talk about Brexit and you have a very interesting story in the Irish Times uh, today uh, revealing some of the details of the conversation they had and some of the communications that happened between the British Irish governments at the highest levels on Monday and essentially uh, the uh, The result of that is that there is kind of growing UK concern Uh, over the nature and terms of the border agreement. Yeah, this harks back to the December
2: deal um, that was struck to allow the UK to proceed to phase two of the Brexit talks which are ongoing at the moment and everybody will remember that there was this idea that in the absence of any deal, uh, overarching deal between the EU and the UK on their future relationship that Northern Ireland would adopt a fallback position would be in full alignment with effectively the rules of the customs union and the single market which would, pretty much mean that it would stay within the single market and the customs union. That was held by the government as, you know, this cast iron bulletproof guarantee that Northern Ireland would, there would be no hard border. I think there is concern on the British side that that has become almost the default position of the Irish government, that that is pretty much what is being heard in public discourse the whole time. And I was told that in the bilateral meeting with the Taoiseach, Theresa May said, that she would like to be more emphasis on options A and B in that deal. So there were three scenarios in that deal in which a hard border would be voted. One was in the context of a final agreement between the EU and the UK. Two was on the basis of um, bespoke solutions from the UK itself. This is, we've heard time and again about technological solutions, you know, number plate registering, Mm -hmm. all that type of stuff. And the third was that fallback option. So Theresa May had asked that, you know, there would be more exploring of option A, which is how a hard border could be, avoided in the future trade deal. Letitia, I am told, agreed with her that he would allow his officials go off and examine how a hard border could be avoided in that scenario. But he also made the point that you need to make a political decision. It's no good talking about officials and the government's position is
0: still, despite all that, that it wants option C. OK, well, you better not get the Copenhagen economists to do it or we'll all go, oh. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Phil, And thanks also to Frank MacDonald and Amanda Ferguson. Well, that's all from the Irish Times Political Podcast for this week. Uh, I just want to thank uh, the producer Jennifer Ryan and Declan Conlon who did sound for us this week. So goodbye and thank you very much indeed for listening.